So there's uh, got a lot of scripture for you this morning. So we're going to start with this. For this reason, I bow my knees to the Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, from whom the whole family in heaven and earth is named, that he would grant you according to the riches of his glory to be strengthened with might through his spirit in the inner man, that Christ may dwell in your hearts through faith, that you being rooted and grounded in love. This is a declarative prayer. Paul is praying over a church and he is declaring something over their lives. And we're declaring it now. May be able to comprehend with all the saints what is the width, what is the length, what is the depth, and what is the height. That you would know the love of Christ which surpasses knowledge and you would be filled with the fullness of God. And to him who is able to do exceedingly abundantly above all that we can ask or think, to him and according to the power that works within us, to him be glory in the church by Christ to all generations forever and ever. Amen. All right, next slide. So what he's saying here, for this reason I bow my knee, and then he declares a prayer over the church. Well, what reasons are he, is he bowing his knee? The reason that Paul's saying, I bow my knee and I surrender, submission, service, all of me to Jesus, and the reason that he says that is related back to chapter 2. And so he says, what, what is it that, what is the reason that he's bowing his knee? And it's because it's the heart of the Father that is for us. And in chapter 2 he says, I bow my knee because Jesus has made me alive. Because I was dead and now Christ lives in me and I'm alive, I bow my knee. To show us his kindness through grace because he has been kind to me. And he has enabled me to receive this and he's allowed me to receive this. I bow my knee. And in chapter 2 he also says, I, brought, I have been brought near. I not only have been brought near, he paid for me with his blood. That's an, an incomprehensible thought when you think about that. He paid with me, paid for me with his blood. He broke down the middle wall of separation. There was a veil that was created between us and our Father because of sin, because of separation. And he says, because Jesus has broken down the wall and because Jesus has torn the veil, I bow my knee. We have access to our Father not by form, but by reality. In other words, religion is about form and function. And oftentimes in Christianity, we're taught about form and function and liturgy and coming and going, but we're not taught the reality of the relationship that we have with Jesus and the access that we have to the heart of our Father and the one who created us and loves us. So our, the access that we have to God is not in a form, but it is in a reality. There is no longer any separation. We can come unto our Father. We can receive from our Father. We can be blessed by our Father. And we can give to Him because of Jesus. And if Christ is in your heart, you have, everybody say it with me, total. Oh, come on, 1130. Total, total. Access. access. Not only does He give us access back to our Father, Jesus sets down the cornerstone of a new life. This is, again, an amazing thought when you really think about it. He says everything that was no longer matters. Everything that you did and all of the stuff that you built in the past and everything that's been against you and all of that nonsense is no more. Jesus becomes the chief cornerstone of a new life. And he said, what happened, what, what a cornerstone is, is a cornerstone, say it with me, sets the direction of the building. And so Jesus says, I'm going to put a cornerstone down in your life and I'm going to build a new building for you. If as you build and as you go forward, line it up with me, and I'm going to build you something that's greater than ever, anything that ever was or anything that you could ever hope to be. Again, who does that? He takes away all that was. You don't have to carry it anymore. You, say it with me. I don't have to live there anymore. Right? And he gives you a new place, and he gives you a new beginning and a new hope. 
And Paul says, for this reason I bow my knee. And what is he bowing to? And what do we bow? When we bow before our Father, what is it that we're bowing to? We're yielding to Him. And that's what bowing means. But we're yielding to the sense of identity. This is huge, huge. That's why you hear me talk about identity all the time. It is a trigger point into the kingdom. If identity is not understood, we're not going to go any farther. Kick my notes on the floor here. My announcements that I was supposed to read, but I didn't. Ha ha. Anyway. <laughs> we chose a higher, a higher announcement. We yield to his identity. So when we're yielding, we're no longer yielding to who we were. We're no longer yielding to our family says. We're no longer yielding to what society says. We're no longer yielding to what our choices have said we've become or anything like that. We're yielding to who our father says. I'm a son before you. I am a daughter. If you were a daughter, you were a daughter before him. This is who I am. I am yielding to who you say I am. I'm no longer be who I was. I'm going to be who you say I am. And not just in action, but just in attitude. The action's going to be empowered by the Spirit. You can't do it if you try. There's another trigger point. You can't do this stuff if you try. You can't. You can't live as a son before your father. You can't live as a daughter before your father. You need the Spirit of God. But what he's asking us to do, would you align with who I say you are? Would you make an agreement with me of who I say you are? Would you stop making agreements with yourself and who you say you are? And making agreements with your, your, your brokenness and your fallenness and, your, and all of the stuff. Make an agreement with me and un, yield to who I say you are. He says, I'm bowing and I'm yielding to your purpose. It is no longer my purpose, Lord. I'm bowing and yielding to your purposes. And I'm bowing and yielding to your understanding. In other words, what he's saying is, I want to understand and I'm yielding myself to what it is that you want me to understand. God can't give you anything if you don't yield to it. He can't. He never transgresses or steps across your will. It's so true. You don't want it, you don't have to have it. He has it there for you, but he isn't going to ram it down your throat. He's not going to knock you underground and high karate you a few times. He's not going to do that. He lays it out. This is exactly what we see in the Gospels when we see Jesus. Jesus lays out truth and he lets it linger there. And he stands. And you know what he does? He watches to see if anybody wants it. If nobody wants it, he gets up and moves on. It's exactly what you see. It was only those that wanted it were the ones that got it. It was only those that asked the question. Jesus, that's what I talk about you guys about. He says these profound truths. And it's taking us generations to understand what Jesus said there. And we still don't fully understand some of the stuff that he said. But he throws out these truths and he just stands and waits. Is anybody going to ask a question? No? Okay. Moves on. Lays out signs, wonders, miracles. I'm sure there were many in the crowd that wanted healing when Jesus healed people, but they didn't want to come forth. I'm sure there were many in the crowd that had questions, but they didn't want to come forth. God can't give you anything if you don't want it. You have to yield. You understand? He can't even get you to understand unless you yield. Unless you yield, say, you say, I don't want to understand. God wants to give you understanding. The Bible tells us in Proverbs to seek wisdom like gold and under, wisdom and understanding were to seek more, more than treasure itself. In other words, we're to yield to that. We're to pursue that. Next slide, please. Poor to understand. He's not, I always tell people, Jesus isn't going to work any harder than you. It's true. It's like God helps those that help himself. Not necessarily, but what he does is if you're not going to partner with him, he's not going to do it for you. 
If you're partnering with him, he's going to do a lot of it with you. You understand? But it's a partnership. It has always been a divine partnership. It has always been. From the creation of mankind all the way unto the end, it has always been a partnership with God. We shared last night, and I just want to thank some of you all that came out and, uh, for the conference. I got to speak at a little conference here in Miami, and it was fun. It was a lot of fun, yeah? And so uh, you guys made me feel at home. There was a lot of you that showed up, and so I want to thank you for that. And uh, there was another guy that spoke after me. And we shared a lot of things in that conference, and so it was really wonderful. But I forgot what I was going to say, but I was going to say something that I said last night, and it just completely ran away from me. However, if it comes back, I'll tell you. <laughs> it was the heart of our Father. It's the heart of our Father. He's not going to... We treat, we treat uh, the things that Jesus says, and I, again, it's a common thing I say, is that um, it's like Reader's Digest. We just think he's going to show up on the door and go, here it is. It's a partnership. Oh, I know what I was going to say. Man is the arbiter of two worlds. We have been created to, be, to stand between two worlds. You understand this? God created man. This is the original creation. Adam stood in the spirit and in the natural. That was his design. That's why Adam saw angels. He had a winged snake, a winged angelic snake. It's called a hanafesh. It wasn't like your garden snake. It was an angelic being that was in the form of a winged serpent that came and talked to him. And Adam and Eve talked to it. And why did they talk to it? Because it wasn't out of the ordinary. They were seeing angels all the time. The Bible says that God was walking with them in the cool of the day. The father would come down and take a stroll with them. Now, you and I, we'd be completely freaked out if this winged angelic thing started strolling up to us and started talking to, them, to us. But they weren't freaked out because it was part of their world at the time. God created man to stand between two worlds, on earth as it is in heaven. That's how we were created. We're the only beings in the entire universe that have access to the realm of the heavenlies. And we have it through Christ. Nobody else gets it. Oh, you can access spirit, but you can't ask heaven, heavenly spirit. There's lots of people. You can even see humans tapping into spirits. And why is it? Because they have the potential to tap into spirits. But we were not created to tap into spirits. We were created to tap into the spirit in the realm of God. And it was to be from his world to our world. That's exactly the mandate that God gave Adam. As, you see, as above, so beneath. And you see it all through Scripture. Adam fell, no longer any access to the spirit. Man was forever sealed in the natural until Jesus came. That's what happened. And what did Jesus come as? Ready? He came as a man. To do what? Bring back together at one. He came as a man because man, not only to save us, but he couldn't arbit, he couldn't bring the two worlds together unless he came as a man because God designed man to be the bridge between the two worlds. And so Christ came as a man. The, guess what happened? The heavens opened. What happened when Jesus was baptized? The heavens were opened. The worlds became as one. Hello. And so Jesus walked in the power of the Spirit, the presence of the Spirit, bridging the gap between that world and this one, dies on the cross, resurrects, and now imparts to you and me the Spirit. And by that Spirit, we have the same access He did. That is truth. Come on. You say, well, we don't, we don't experience it. Here, here's, our conflict in our, here's our conflict in our Western churches. Our conflict is in the realm of our mind. And our conflict is in the realm of our experiences. And so we reduce the truth of God beneath the level of our experience. That's what happens. 
We take God's truth and we go, well, we don't experience that. So we pull the word of God down and plant it underneath our experience. Wrong. Wrong. Truth of God remains. Just because your experience isn't, isn't in, you're not encountering the truth of God doesn't mean the truth of God isn't right. We press into truth till truth becomes the reality. We're the arbiters of two worlds. Shared this last night too, but we may as well throw it all out there. It's all coming back to me. It's all coming back to me now. As the song goes. Of all the things we are called to be, we're fishers of men, right? I love this. I had a, I had a, I, you know how I got this? I got this because I asked Jesus a question. I was like, it just dawned on me one time. I'm like, of all of the pictures and the analogies you used, why did you say fishers of men? Why? Why not herders of sheep? You know, herders of cats? Farmers in the field? You know, why, didn't he, why did he say fishers of men? Because it relates, and here's why we don't understand this. Because God gives us word that is only understood from a prophetic understanding. If you don't value the prophetic, you're not going to access the things that God speaks. And so that word lies on the ground. Follow me and I'll make you fishers of men. And ask theologians what it means. Well, you know, we, we think it means this and it means that. And if you ask Bible scholars, they're going to give you some like lame excuse as to why he used that picture. I'm telling you. Read a commentary on it and you're going to get up and you're like, well, okay, all right, I guess so. But Jesus says profound things. The reason that he says that we are fishers of men is he is speaking back to our original identity and our original creation that we are the arbiters or the bridges between two worlds. Because when you fish, what do you do? You, you, you pull something out of the water, don't you? You literally pull something from one world to the other. You see that? He is speaking to who we are. We are the people who stand between the two worlds and pull from one world into the other. That's who we are. That's how we are created. That's why he says, I'll make you fishers of men. I'm going to teach you, if you follow me, to pull from that world into mine. And I'm going to model it for you. Oh, well, that just doesn't make sense to the natural mind, Pastor. I don't understand that, and that just doesn't seem correct. Old Testament theology, the people pushed away from power and chose ritual over power. Modern church does the same way, because power requires us to work. You ever been fishing? It's fun, but it's work. You understand? And some people, some of you guys, you go out fishing and you're like going, I don't understand how this is fun. This just seems like work to me. When you fish, you got to work. When you're pulling from one world into another, you got to work. You don't even know what you got on the line. You got something on the line. I don't know. I got something. And you're trying to pull something, but you don't even know what it is you're trying to pull. When we're pulling from that world and we're trying to bring that world into ours and we're trying to get the promises of God into our reality, it is work. And we're lazy, 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 lazy. Well, I don't know. I don't know. It just seems like too much work. I don't want to go to church today. I just, I don't, I don't know. I don't know. I don't, I don't, want, to, I don't want to do these things. I mean, it's just too much work. We're lazy. Lazy. That's why it lies dormant. Promises of God lie dormant. Promises of God lay unactivated. And here's what we do. We, again, we reduce our, our thinking. We reduce, our, we reduce our, God's word unto our reality. And we just make all these doctrines. Well, if God wanted to do it, he would do it. Well, he wants to do it because he said he wants to do it. But he needs a partner in this world to co-labor with him in order to bring it to pass. Crickets, crickets, crickets. You see, he wants to do, if God wanted to do that in my life, he, oh, let's make it personal. If God wanted to do that in my life, he'd already do it. Well, are you partnering with him? Are you pressing in? There's a phrase called contending for the promises. 
The kingdom is suffering violence. You have violent opposition to the things God wants to do in your life. That's what it means. Well, I feel like God wants to bless me, but, or he wants to do whatever it is he's told you or shown you, but it isn't happening. So I guess it means God doesn't want to do it. Who told you that? No, nowhere in your Bible does it tell you that. It doesn't say that at all. Nowhere. What he's looking for is he's looking for a partner that will agree with him, contend for the promises, go through the violent opposition, and there's violent opposition to what it is God said. He's opposing what he's told you. Holy, the, the devil is counterfeiting and throwing up false realities to countermand you pursuing truth. So he's projecting a false reality to get you to partner with the false reality because he knows if you partner with truth, his defeat is inevitable and the blessing is inevitable. He, that's what he knows. And so what he does is he tries to get you to quit, throws up false realities, will look around you. If God was going to bless you, it wouldn't be like this. If God was really for you, it wouldn't be like this. And then you go, well, I guess so. And you're the arbiter of two worlds. We manifest according to our belief. That's why Jesus said, if you say to that mountain, what is he doing? He's giving you a metaphor of a very large concept. And we just kind of go, did he really mean to cast the mountain into the sea? No, he's trying to get you to understand the partnership with faith and the partnership with belief and the partnership with his world can cause anything that seems impossible to happen. That's what he's trying to get you to understand. You see? Well, what we do as believers is we push away from power and we choose ritual. Where's the bum boom? Where's the bum gumball machine, pastor? Where's the, where's the fish tank? Where's the laser light show? Tickle me today. Woo. And listen, church should be fun. Church should be exciting. But we make a substitution for power. It's a substitution. And it's a poor one. When you encounter his reality, that is a poor substitute for the, for the authentic. Skinny jeans and smoke machines. That's the modern day church. I got nothing wrong with skinny jeans and smoke machines. God help us to have skinny jeans. I don't think I have them on today. I, I'm too fat. My legs look good, but this just isn't happening. I'm like, no, nah, I don't know. Yeah. Anyway, it's another story. Skinny jeans and smoke machines are fine if you're bringing the reality of the kingdom. But if all you're doing is manufacturing an artificial counterfeit, it means nothing. 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 We push away from power and pursue ritual. Ritual. Just give us ritual. Just tell us a couple of things to do, but let us not pursue power. Power is the only thing that's going to change you. Power is the only thing that's going to change the city. Power is the only thing that's going to change anything. If you don't pursue that, that's nothing going to happen. You can, can pretend for the promises if he's told you, then you keep pressing in. The contention of prayer is what, didn't he say it? The effectual fervent prayers of the righteous avail much. It will happen. But partnership has to happen. Agreement has to happen. Has to happen. Whose report will you believe? Okay, we can go all through the Bible. And, and that concept is clear. That concept is all the way through the scriptures. Adam and Eve made a partnership with the devil and they experienced the results. God had wanted a partnership with himself and they had made a partnership with a fallen angel and they experienced the results. God brought them to bring the children of Israel into promised land and he challenged them, who are you going to partner with? Are you going to partner with me? Are you going to partner with unbelief? And they said, oh, they partnered with unbelief and they all died, never seeing the promises. I'm telling you, this is a key concept of what God wants to do and it is all through the scripture. One of the, my, again, one of my favorite verses, when Jesus looks at his disciples and goes, have I been with you so long and you don't know me? Are you still dull? 
Why don't we teach those scriptures? Why don't we challenge ourselves and go, why am I still dull that I don't understand this? Lord, take away the dullness of my spirit. Take away the, the, the indifference that I have. Take away the deafness off of my ears that I can hear. Take away the blindness off of my eyes that I can see. Why am I still dull? <laughs> Just a thought. You still with me? Yeah? All right. <laughs> Half the room's going to get up and walk out the door. I don't know. I will be a father to you. You will be my sons and daughters. You have a father. This is the concept. That was completely unrelated to what, I, what I'm supposed to say today. <laughs> we're sons and daughters. God sent forth his sworn, born from a woman, to redeem those who are under the law. And because you're sons and daughters, you have his spirit. So God positions you. He reestablishes you in your rightful position. His created intent was for you to be a son and a daughter before him through Christ. And not only does he give you his position, he gives you his spirit so that you can walk it out. You can't walk it out without the Holy Spirit. Big misnomer in the church. We think we can perform these things. I always want to go back to Galatians. Having begun in the what? In the spirit. Do you think you can now do this stuff in the flesh? Did you think your intellect and your human will and your great abilities is going to accomplish the things that God has set before you? Answer, no. It's by the Spirit. So we have a Spirit in our heart and we cry out, Abba, Father. I'm going to go a little long, so I'm already long, but guys, bear with me. That's right. Bear with me. He's got bread in the oven and it's good, right? So I just want to share this with you. I want to impart something to you. Okay? And it says, the Spirit received does not make you slaves. So God gives us a Spirit and we're no longer slaves. And again, an understanding. Jesus said, I don't call you servants, I call you friends. And ultimately, he's calling us to sons and daughters. But he's dealing with us at the level of our understanding. And that spirit in our heart is not bringing us into bondage. But it is a spirit that comes into our heart that causes us to cry out, Abba, Father. Did you guys see Guardians of the Galaxy? Only Shelly saw it last service. And I think everybody's Christian. They're like, no, I'm not going to admit I saw that movie. I'm not going to say anything about a movie. I'm in church. I don't know about that. Anybody see that movie, Guardians of the Galaxy? Yeah. Uh, so anyway, the, the main character, Will, I think his name's Will, whatever his name is, he's about to die, and he had just met his, earth, he just met his biological father, quote-unquote, in the movie. And so he, his biological father's trying to kill him, so long story short, he's put in a position where he's about to lose his life, and he was raised by another guy, another character, whose name is Yondu. And so as he's about ready to die, out of nowhere comes Yondu, and Yondu grabs him, and he says, he may be your father, boy, but he ain't your daddy. <laughs> I love that line. We got many fathers, but we only got one daddy. That's what that means. Daddy God. Abba, Father, you are my daddy. Daddy. What does it mean? It means everything that daddy means. Daddy. We're not in bondage. Nothing has the right over you, Christian. God empowers you, positions you, and gives you authority. You do not have to accept the circumstances that you find yourself in. Make an agreement, make a covenant, and begin to do the things that he has said to do, and begin to speak to the things that are opposing you. What shall we say to these things? We prayed last night, the conference, and one of the things I felt like God was telling me to do is just renounce and break off of the people, the deaf and dumb spirit, a spirit that will not hear and a people that will not speak. And we have a deaf and dumb spirit that's on the, on the church. And when Jesus confronted that in the scripture, he didn't, he didn't confront the father. He didn't confront the boy. He confronted the generation. He said, faithless generation, how long must I bear with you? How long will you tolerate yourselves to live under a deaf and dumb spirit? 
How long will you tolerate yourselves to be under a place where you will cannot hear my voice? How long will you tolerate your inability to speak? Not saying the things of God. There goes my computer. Is it, did, it, did it go out of power? What happened? Just bring it to me. Oh, it's back? We're back. All right, we got one screen. Right, we're back. I guess it's telling me. Come on, Kevin, get it moving. Get it moving. Come on, get it moving. <laughs> Our power is in the spirit. We're not in bondage. We don't have nothing has rights over you. It's not because of you, it's because of his spirit. What he has done, he's put you in this place, he's given you his spirit. Our position is given, it's not earned, aren't you glad? You didn't do anything. He just loved you. And you go, why does he love me? Just because. It's like David said, what am I that you are mindful of me? Why have you given this to me? Just because. He sets his affections on you. He's that loving, he's that kind, he's that good. He will give it to anyone who will receive his son. He loves the whole world. When you come into Christ, it's a whole different story. We're called into in order to become. It's called actualized. Say this with me. Jesus calls me who and what I am long before I get there. Aren't you glad? That's right. You don't earn the title with Jesus. He gives it. Who does that? Well, if you just perform the right way, maybe one day you'll achieve this status. He gives you the status, and he says, that's who you are. Live like it. And he calls you over and over. We tell the story of the prodigal son. Love that story. Something that's oftentimes not misunderstood or sometimes it's not really revealed. When the prodigal son came home, he repented. Lord, I've sinned against Father, I've sinned against heaven, and I've sinned against you. What do you see in the story? The father, metaphor of the, our father, receives the repentance, but he would not receive the, the, the lowering of his identity. As soon as he said, I'm no longer to be called your son, he cut him off and would accept no more. So what does it mean? Jesus will accept the repentance, but he will not tolerate the lowering of your identity. He will not call you anything other than what he has called you. And as soon as he began to deny himself as a son, the father said, get the robe and put it on my what? My son. Get the ring and put it on my what? My son. Get the shoes and put it on my what? My son. Kill the fatted calf because my what? My son has come home. He didn't say, my no good, down-believing son. He's no longer my son. You're going to be a slave. You're going to sleep in a barn. He didn't do that. we got to understand who he is and how he sees us. Guilt and shame is an enemy of the church. It is an enemy of the believer. All guilt does is it's a conviction to draw you back to Jesus and go, I'm off. And the Lord goes, I know you are. Let's take a bath and let's go again. That's all it is. It's not a pounding down, you know, it's not a, a, a now you, you screwed up so you no longer have that position. That's not what he does. That's why it's called grace. Holiness traditions don't accept that because we're so sin conscious. Christian churches are sin conscious. All we are is conscious of sin. Looking for sin everywhere. Congregations looking for sin. Oh, I saw you. You know, oh, what have you been doing, brother? Sin conscious. God's already dealt with sin. He's not sin conscious. He's righteousness conscious. He's not looking for what's wrong. He's looking for what's right. He's like, yeah, I'm like, Lord, that's wrong. He's like, yeah, I know it's wrong. Let's forget about that. Let's do what's right. That's, all, that's how he is. That's how amazing he is. But we portray him as a guy, God walking around with a bat, strolling through the church. Whack. Oh, you're late this morning because you got a hangover. Whack. Went to that R-rated movie. 
pastor asked if you saw it. You didn't see it? Or you saw it and you just told him, no whack. That's how we portray him. He is not that kind of God. It's for freedom's sake that Christ has made you free. You're free. You're free. You're a son before him and nothing's going to change that. You mean I can't screw this up? No, you can't. Well, I don't know about that, Pastor. I'm not too sure about that. I don't, I don't know. Read it. Read it. If you are converted and truly converted, you are his son before him, before him forever. Your position is given, it's not earned. If it was about you, it would, we, none of us would be right. It's the word actualized. You put a seed in the ground and it actualizes itself into a tree. God has put the seed of sonship in your heart. And by the work of his spirit, his intent is to actualize that truth. He puts the seed of daughtership in, his heart, in your heart. And his intent is to actualize what it is that he's put in your heart. And he's doing it with his spirit. That's what he's doing. You say, what's God doing with me? That's what he's doing. That's what he's doing. Next slide. God's out to get me. Well, if he wanted you, he'd already have you. Just to let you know. Okay? Jeremiah says this. We have a father who not only, we not only have a father, we have a father who loves us. I've looked upon you with an, I have loved you with an everlasting love. The idea is from afar. That's what Jeremiah says in our translation. I've loved you when you were distant from me. I've loved you when you were so far from me. I've loved you. And I've drawn you to myself. <laughs> with the fear of your destruction. No, I've drawn you to myself with kindness. Kindness. I'm all right with the conviction of sin. I'm all right with the understanding of justice and judgment. I got it. I preach sin, righteousness, and judgment here, okay? I'm not afraid of it because I know what God has called me to do. But what the Bible says is that mercy triumphs over judgment. So while we make judgment an issue because it is a reality, what needs to be the greater reality is his mercy because mercy is greater than judgment. His mercy triumphs over judgment. He's not looking to judge. He's looking to be merciful. He's looking to be kind. He demonstrates his love for us is that when you weren't a sinner, he loved you. When you weren't a sinner, he still, he still took care of you. How much more will he do so now, now that you're in his love? God loved the world. He gave his love and begotten son. Life is in, well, I'm going to skip that. Life as sons and daughters. The Spirit's role is to activate that within us. Next slide. So not only do we have a father, we have a father who loves us. I love this verse. I absolutely love this verse. It's the story of Hosea. Ready? <laughs> in the book of Hosea, the people are not doing anything right. They've left the Lord. They've decided they're going to go worship all these other idols. They're going to do all these other things. They're going to do everything that they not only believe is wrong, know is wrong, but they're going to do some things just because they want to see for themselves. Anybody here? I just want to go do that because I want to. I know it's wrong, but I want to see for myself. Crickets, crickets, crickets. <laughs> And the Lord tells them in the 13th verse, he says, the consequences of your choices are visiting you. That's what he says. It's a poor translation in the Hebrew. The, the, Hebrew, said, the Hebrew was, I, the Lord, am visiting you. It doesn't say that at all. If you go to the Hebrew, what it simply means is you have a visitation of consequences. The Lord is objective to that. He's not like interpersonally. And what he's saying is, is that the consequences of your choices have come upon you. And he says this. And because of that, what does he say? I will allure you. Because this has come upon you, because you've made a complete and total train wreck of your life, and because all of this stuff has come upon you, I'm going to allure you. I'm going to lead you into the wilderness, and what am I going to do? I'm going to speak kindly to you. And I'm going to give you back your vineyards. 
I'm going to bring you into the valley of Achor, and you know what I'm going to give you? A door of hope. Where you have presented yourself and have received the consequences of your decisions, and now hopelessness and despair is on you. And you feel no kindness. You feel no mercy. You only feel the words of, I deserve it. The Lord says, I'm going to lead you to a place. And in the world, wilderness is the Hebrew word debar, and it means to speak. So God is going to bring you to a place where he can speak to you. He's going to bring you into a place where I can get a word across to you. You're here, some of you are here this morning. That's the only way God can get a word across to you. He's getting a word across to you this morning. And what is he saying? I want to speak kindly to you. What is he saying? You've lost your vineyards. I want to give them back. You've lost your hope. Don't worry. I'm going to bring you through a door. Huh? He says, I'm going to present to you a door. You have to walk through it. How many knows when God presents it, you've got to walk through it? Okay? He sticks his hand out, and you've got to take it out of his hand. He opens the door, and he stands there and looks at you. You're going to go through it? Oh, I don't know, Lord. I don't know. Go through the door. <laughs> and he says, and because of this, because you will respond to me. You have a God who is for you. He's not trying to get you. I'm going to share this because this is important because I want you guys to understand fully what it is the Lord is doing in your life. This is a big, big verse. Romans 8, 29. For whom he foreknew, he predestined. And I'm going to pause right there. We have an insanely twisted understanding of this word predestination. The church, particularly Reformed theology, has created an entire... They have volumes of books on a concept called predestination. Well, and, and, and I don't even know where they get this stuff because it's not in the Bible. It is nowhere in the Bible, but they've created this swirling understanding of predestination, and they teach it over and over again. And the core of predestination means some are destined to go to hell, some are destined to go to heaven. And God knows who are going to go to heaven, and God knows who are going to go to hell. And they cast it all back up on God. That's, the con that's, a, that's a snapshot of what, I'm not going to get into all because it will take me an hour. But the predestination, you know what predestination means? You can go to the Greek, you can go to the Hebrew, you can break it down by syllable, you can break it down by letter, you can break it down by verb tense, and it means the same thing. Predetermined destiny. That's all it means. That's all it means. So when you receive Christ, he puts you in a predetermined destiny. You are positioned in a predetermined. God has said, those who receive Jesus, I am going to put back in their rightful place as sons and daughters. That is their eternal destiny before me forever. That's what he means by predestination. Does he know you're going to get saved? Yeah. Does he know who's not? He, yeah, he knows the end from the beginning. But he's not intertwining himself with that. People say, well, I don't know about Jesus extended Judas a choice. He extended Judas. He dipped the sop twice. And in the Hebrew Passover, dipping the sop in the bitter and the sweet means life or death, blessing or cursing. It is significant of the choices that were given to the, the Jews under the law. And Jesus dipped the choice. He knew what Judas was going to do. And he dipped it in the bitter and he dipped it in the sweet. Having foreknew that Judas was going to betray him. And he still offered him a choice. Did he send him to hell? No, he said, you know what this means, Judas. He's a Jew. They would all know, understand what was going on. They wouldn't have, there would be no mystery as to what Jesus was doing there. The double dipping of the sop. He double dipped it and he handed it. Judas took it ate it, got up, and betrayed him. He made his choice there in the moment. Jesus offers a choice even unto death. He will labor and draw men and women unto himself until the last breath. 
He'll rearrange circumstances. He'll rearrange worlds in order to get the message to those. He can. That's what he does. That's what, come on, somebody clap. I got one clap in the room. It's a predetermined destiny. When you receive Christ, you enter into a predetermined destiny. And he justifies you. And what does that mean? In other words, what right do you have to stand as a son of God? What right do I'm a son before my father in heaven? Well, what right do you have? Jesus. He's the one who justifies you. You don't give yourself the right to hold that position. Justified means made right. Justified means you have a just reason for being there and it's been given to you. So when he predestines you, he says, you're a son before me. Yeah, but who says I am? The Lord says, I am. I'm your justification. Jesus is your justification. It has nothing to do with you. You are, so therefore be. You are, so therefore be. And he glorifies you. So what God is doing is he's trying to align you with your predetermined destiny. You're a son before him. He's trying to get you to understand it. To the, to the non-believer, he's calling you into it. To the believer, he's saying, would you please get this? Would you please understand this? Could you please get your thinking right? Predetermined destiny. You're a son before him, and I have a destiny before my father. Well, what makes me be here? I haven't done anything right. I've received Jesus, but I keep screwing up. What gives me the right to be there? He's justified you. You don't justify yourself. And his process is to glorify. Whom he justifies, he glorifies. Glorifies is the way to goodness. So God's trying to line you up in your position, in your destiny. He's trying to get you to understand that he's given it to you and no one can take it from you. And he's trying to put the weight of glory on your life, which is the weight of his goodness and the weight of their purpose in the world. This is what he's doing. This is what the Spirit of God is doing in your life constantly. And we can't partner with guilt. We can't partner with shame. We can't keep getting back and forth into this. I had a pastor who used to tell me, admit it and quit it. Oh, you don't know what I did last night? And he goes, I don't need to know. <laughs> Please don't tell me. He said, admit it and quit it. He used to tell me when I was an early believer, if you trip and fall over a table, Kevin, you're going to lay there on the floor? Are you going to get up? Right? Boom, I trip over the table. I'm on the floor. Oh, I fell. I fell. Oh, God, how big? Ten years later, you're still laying on the floor because you tripped over the table? Get up. Come on, next slide. He loves you. He's for you. He's appointed you to destiny. Seeking first his kingdom. Our destiny lies in our understanding. Our, God, our destiny lies in our understanding of our Father's vision. What does he want? Our Father is doing something. He has a vision for the world. He has a vision for the community. He has a vision for his church. And he has a vision for your life. You can't do anything until you understand what, what in the world am I here for? What has God called me to do? And that looks, that is a very broad thing. And that is worthy of your life's pursuit. There are basic things that God has called you to. There are specific things that God has called you to. And there are, there are high things that God has called you to. There's, God has a vision for your life. And you're, that will come when you begin to line up and begin to push in and begin to determine what has God said to me. And that's a whole other teaching. Our divine destiny is in partnership with our Father. So here's the last slide. What should be our response? Next slide. Allow the Spirit to activate the Father's love in your heart. Love Him back. So as Christians, God puts, so He makes us sons and daughters. He tells you you're loved, and you know what He does? Ready? He puts the love, and He puts His love in your heart. And in Christian terms, what the New Testament calls it is they calls it drunk love. Okay? Anybody know what drunk love looks like? Oh, man, I love you, man. I love you. I love you. Oh, I love you, too. It's drunk love. That's the love that God puts in our heart. 
That's why when you have the spirit in us, man, we're just like, I love you. Ah, oh, so good to see you. Here, have my car. No, have my house. <laughs> Here, have my wallet. Here, you know. Drunk love. I had an uncle, man. We used to go for Christmas. I tell the story all the time, so I feel like I'm, I'm going to tell it. We'd go for Christmas. My Uncle Ozzy would have three or four beers in him. Once he had three or four beers in him, all the kids knew to stand around a table. Because Uncle Ozzy was going to pull out the wallet and start handing out bills. He'd get over three or four beers and he'd be like, oh, I love you kids. Here, have a 20. Here, you have a 10. Here, you have a... We'd all be standing there. And we literally go in a room, how many beers has he drank? Is he... He's on his second one. Okay, come and get us when he's on his third. <laughs> Drunk love. That does not very spiritual, Kevin. It, well, anyway. Live as if you cannot fail. Declare and activate your favor. You can't fail, Christian. Your father's for you. If God be for you, who can be against you? Christians only fail when they quit. Only way. Learn the kingdom vision and align yourself with the purposes that are within his will. You believe it? Yeah? I know I fire-hosed you. I went really fast, but... It'll be up on SoundCloud, and uh, you'll be able to listen to it a little bit further. But let me pray for you. If you're here this morning and you've never given your life to Jesus, my words to you would simply be this. Today's your day. You say, I'm God's child. Well, you're God's creation. You're not his child. The Bible says only those who receive Jesus have been given the power and the right to be called the children of God. But the Father wants you to come into his love, and he wants you to come into his family. You were accepted. He wants you. It's not based on you. It's based on him. And he's giving you an invitation and it's being presented to you right now. So if you've never asked Jesus into your heart, or maybe there's a person here and you feel like, man, I'm really distant from my father. And I just, I'm not really even sure where I'm at anymore. And I just want to give myself back to him. That's awesome too. We're going to pray. We're going to pray together as a church. And all we ask you to do is pray along with us and open your heart. Present yourself to the Lord and receive back from him. It's as simple as that. The Bible says, believe in your mouth and confess with your heart that Jesus Christ is Lord and he's risen from the dead. And the Bible says you'll be saved. So let's just pray. Just say, dear Jesus, I believe that you are Savior and I need a Savior. So I open my heart to you, Jesus. And I ask you to come inside. I ask you to heal me. I ask you to forgive me. I ask you to restore me. And I ask you to repurpose my life. All that I am... I give to you. In all that you are, I receive as mine. From this day forward, I choose to follow you. In Jesus' name. If you did that, I'd say simply welcome to the family. Come on, yeah. All right. There's a pass out at the door, I'm being told. The Father's love letter. So, aw, yeah. Take one of these on your way out. Uh, I haven't read it, so I have no idea what it says, but obviously it's a Father's love. Let me bless you one more time. Just receive it. <laughs> May the Lord bless you. May the Lord keep you. Come on, receive it. May the Lord cause his face to shine down upon you. May he be gracious to you and give you peace. And may you forever live within his favor. In Jesus' name, God loves you. We love you. Have a great week. <laughs>